What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hello, and welcome to The Parting Shot, your dose of everything pop culture. I'm H. Allen Scott. Today, I want to talk about two standout performances from last year, which are garnering a lot of awards buzz. These performances hit me in a way I didn't expect, so I was particularly eager to speak with the actors behind them. One of those performances comes from Charles Melton in the Todd Haynes film, May-December. He's been picking up a ton of awards for his performance and is a leading contender for the Best Supporting Actor Oscar. But before we get to Charles, I want to start things off today with Coleman Domingo because he has given the other performance this year that I am just blown away by. Highly respected for years in Hollywood and on Broadway, Domingo really shot to fame this year for two of his performances. You probably heard a small portion of my chat with him if you listened to the episode I did on The Color Purple. I highly encourage you to go listen to that one. I spoke with him and the film star, Fantasia Barino. But today, I want to focus on the performance that has generated a ton of Best Actor Oscar buzz for Domingo. And that performance is in the film Rustin, where Domingo plays the civil rights icon, Bayard Rustin. You'll hear it in the chat that I have with Domingo, but it frustrates me that more people don't know who Bayard Rustin is. He's literally standing behind Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when Dr. King delivers the I Have a Dream speech. Openly queer in a time when people just were not openly queer, Rustin was a central figure in organizing the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. The film Rustin is the first film produced by, well, produced for Netflix by former President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama. In fact, Obama posthumously gave Rustin the Presidential Medal of Freedom for his work, saying that if, it were, if there were no Bayard Rustin, there would be no Barack Obama. He went on to call Rustin the blueprint. I mean, Bayard Rustin was everything, and Domingo's performance in Rustin brings this man to life in a way that we've literally never seen before. Here's my chat with Domingo about his work in the film Rustin. Stick around after my chat with Domingo because I'll be ending things today with Charles Melton. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. I have to say, you have been someone I've been dying to talk to for like most of the year. As soon as I heard about Rustin, I was like, there is no other actor that I've ever thought could play in the last 10 years, maybe Bayard Rustin. And I have been eagerly waiting for the film. And when I saw it, when it came out, I saw a screener of it blown away. Just congrats to you on that. Thank you. Thank you. It's been such a great uh, pleasure Honestly, and this whole road of playing Rustin has been really, 
it's a part of my DNA now of yeah. like, you know, yeah, I feel like I, even some of his dear friends have become my dear friends, which is wonderful. That is amazing. Well, I have some questions about Rustin. I, for me, I had, I mean, I, I did. And when I was a kid growing up, I even just studying in high school, I was never taught anything about Bayard Rustin. And I remember in college being very angry when I started to learn about Bayard Rustin that I had never been taught about Bayard Rustin. And I, I, and I just, I was just like, this is a huge part of queer history as a queer person. Why don't we know this? Why isn't this a regular name? Why aren't there bars named after this man? Like, why is yeah. this not a thing? And you know, the, wild, the wildest thing is, this is the first time someone said that they were angry that they didn't know. Most people feel guilty or feel like, oh, I'm, I felt ashamed that I didn't know. But you feel you felt the exact same way that I felt. Mm. I felt like I was being duped yeah. in my education. And I felt like, oh, so someone's actively trying to make sure that I don't know who I am or my place in the world or, or you know, being a, a queer person as well, mm -hmm. you know, the, you know, and our, our impact on the world or, or human rights or civil rights. Yeah. I thought it was, I, I thought we were really being um, gaslit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, just the image. I mean, just the fact I remember I, I grew up, of course, admiring Martin Luther King Jr. And I, I, and I, and seeing the I Have a Dream speech and realizing when I learned about Bayard Rustin that that's who that person is in this picture yeah. that I've been seeing my entire life and I is imprinted into my brain and I never knew who he was. And it just, yeah. it infuriated me, I remember. It just, it just, it was just so upsetting to me. So I wanted to know from you, what, what does this role mean to you? It means everything. I mean, he's always been, he's been one of my personal heroes since I was 19 years old. I think watching, seeing someone, when you, when I start to unpack this person, understanding he was sort of living fully to every one of his great abilities of being a, a strategist and organizer, um, even the way he spoke or languages and sang Elizabethan love songs and played the lute, he was li really li living fully in, in who he was and at a time when the entire world was set up for him not to exist. Mm -hmm. So I thought that that was, um, I, I could tell with his courage and he didn't um, sell himself short and he didn't marginalize himself. He wanted to be seen and sit at these tables and demand his space and he owned his power. Mm -hmm. I thought that was fascinating. And so, we, you know, the idea of finding out about him when I was about 19 years old, that's what it became a North Star is that, oh, you can be this way mm -hmm. if you are true to who you are and you navigate your spaces. Perhaps things are getting a little better, mm -hmm. you know? I yeah. feel like, I don't know, that, that, that's what it meant to me. Yeah, and also just in a way, I mean, it's taken so long for, I think even now with the film being out, people are just, queer people are just learning about who Bayard Rustin is, which to me is also kind of upsetting, but it also, I, I'm so grateful for the film to be that conduit to sort of teach people who this man is. Why do you think, even with the modern queer rights movement being as, you know, advanced and progressed as it has become over the past, what, 30, even 40 years now, why do you think it's taken so long for people to come to understand who Bayard Rustin is? That's a great question. I wonder if it's because not only he was queer, but he was black. And also I think that he was all, you know, the idea he grew up Quaker. He, there were many things about him that was, he was an outlier in many ways. So you can't sort of like pin him down and no one can really have ownership of him in a way. I think so. I think he, he didn't go straight down the, the line in the middle and play in a, a very centrist way. 
that's the way I can examine it. I think, I think, um, I don't know. He was very singular. And I think that the way he, the, the, and then where he operated, I mean, he really, he went into spaces with mostly heterosexual men and he demanded that he exist, that he contribute and that he was seen fully. It was those people that had like, they couldn't stop thinking about him being gay. He was like, that's not what I'm thinking about. What I'm thinking about is, you know, (laughs) bending this country a little more towards freedom. That's what I'm thinking about. You know? So I think, I don't know that that's, I wonder, I I wonder as well. I don't know. Yeah. I also think it's kind of beautiful that this film is the first project from the Obamas and their, their, you know, production company and what they're doing with Netflix. And, it just got me thinking about, you know, the first black president and the first president to really openly acknowledge marriage equality and that sort of relationship with this story and sort of this this icon of queer history in a lot of ways, but also just civil rights history. And to have those two things happening with this film, the Obamas and then this story, it just seems symbiotic in a way. There just seems to be something there. And I wanted to know if you experienced that and what it was like working with them. Well, it is because of what the, you know, Barack Obama gave, uh, posthumously gave by Rustin the Presidential Medal of Freedom uh, for his work. Uh, and he literally said, but Barack Obama literally said, if there was no by Rustin, there would be no Barack Obama because by Rustin was the blueprint. He truly was. There was no one who could get things done like him. No one who interrogated the work from every single angle to get it done. No one who devoted their life to service since they were a teenager. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, the, he, George C. Wolf, my director, says that Bayer Rustin was the ultimate American. Mm. You know, and, which I think is, I love that statement. The, the fact that he was the ultimate American, that he was so singular in, in who he was in demanding and in, in really moving to make this country better, devoting his, devoting his life to service. Yeah. And what did you... Was there anything new or that surprised you that you learned about Bayard Rustin in portraying him? Oh, everything. Everything, like, you know, even, even down to the fact of, like, how he spoke and why he spoke that way. When I found, because as I was researching him, he had this accent and it kept switching. It would, sometimes it would have a bit more of a flourish, sometimes it would fall away. And I was like, what is this accent? And it sounded like Catherine Hepburn at times or Betty Davis and it was, or British. And I was like, what is this? And I asked Rochelle Horowitz, who's featured in the film, who was a young person organizing transportation for the march in 1963. She said, uh, well, he made that up. I said, what? And she told me one of the reasons why he made it up. But then I, I also made a, another reason for myself, uh, because you got to take dramatic license and really help craft. I'm not doing a documentary. I'm crafting a film. But it said that he had a um, stutter and it helped him dentalize and focus on language but he was also an anglophile he loved anything british but also he um i like to think that he used it as a source of having uh power how he was able to use it as a tool Mm. if any lover of language knows that they can use language as their ultimate tool that's their weapon yeah you know so so i think that knowing that he was a lover of language i know that made sense to me um so that surprised me how he used uh language You can watch Rustin on Netflix right now. Now, let's move on to my chat with Charles Melton and his performance in May-December. 
The film is inspired by the case of Mary Kay Letourneau, the Washington state sex offender who bore children by and later married the 12-year-old boy that she raped. Milton plays Joe as the adult husband of the sex offender, named Gracie in the film, played by Julianne Moore. Natalie Portman plays Elizabeth in the film, an actress slated to portray Gracie in this sort of film-within-a-film type movie. It's a really interesting movie. But it's Melton's performance that is getting the most attention because everything in the story is about him. What's so surprising about Melton's performance is that so much of it is done in the shadows or with no dialogue. He's often spoken to or about rather than being allowed to speak for himself. He's the man who is still somehow a victim living with his predator, putting on a show that they're both sort of orchestrating, but he's gaslit at the same time. Before May-December, Melton was best known for his work in the TV series Riverdale, so May-December is a big departure for the young actor. Charles and I chatted on the morning that he was nominated for a Golden Globe for his performance, so that's how we'll start things off. Uh, Congratulations, as of this morning, you're a Golden Globe nominee. How does that feel? It feels nice. It feels good. I'm just so grateful. I mean, you know... I just keep on going back to those 23 days of filming and yeah, and just like, you know, thinking about that experience and all this great, uh, everything that's happening today and everything's just so much gratitude. So what what a blessing. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was going to ask you first. Like, I mean, there's, I mean, at this point, it seems like every day you're getting nominated for something, which is kind of incredible. And, and I mean, and it's very warranted and, and, and worthy because your performance was incredible and the film's incredible. And my boyfriend and I literally watched it and we were just like, this is just, this is something else. This is great. And how, I want to know how does like, how does this moment feel for you? Because it's a rare moment in an actor's career to get this kind of praise for a performance, you know? Um, it feels surreal. I feel like I have a lot of people that I love and trust that love me and speak truth to me and life to me that really kind of grounds me. And I, I'm with my, I work with my sister and she's with me almost 24 seven. So she really keeps me humbled, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a good thing to have family around just to keep things in check, you know? Uh-huh percent a hundred percent definitely well i mean one of the things that like i said the film's incredible and your performance in the film i mean the entire story really revolves around what happened to your character and and sort of the you know all of the moving parts are because of something that happened to him and yet you don't have a lot of dialogue you have a lot of you is in the background and just sort of in movement and expression and response and all of that was it difficult to navigate sort of really acting without words in a lot of ways you know it really just started with sammy's material right and the complete guidance of who todd is todd haynes is as a filmmaker Mm -hmm. and just a visionary he's a genius i find that the there's so much forms of storytelling where you can tell a story without saying anything at all. And I think about Tony Leung in In the Mood for Love, Wong Kar Wai's film, where there's so much pathos. There's so much going on that's being communicated, and he's not saying one word. Yeah. So just like learning that and just kind of understanding even performances like Heath Ledger in Brokeback Mountain. I mean, mm-hmm. this 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 internal kind of repressed version of his just 
uh, this like internal kind of grit that lives inside of him is how that kind of manifests through the body and just really being able to align myself to Joe's story and just focus on the emotional complexities of who this man is from an internal perspective that kind of ended up shaping naturally this external kind of perception that we see with his mannerisms or the way he talks or the way his mouth doesn't move. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And even just down to like, I mean, the clothes that he's wearing, like he, he looks like a little boy in a 50 year old man's clothes, you know, it's, it's, and he feels lost. It's like he's swimming in them in a way. Yeah. That's April Napier, uh, our costume designer. She's so brilliant. She's so amazing. She, I remember we spent a few hours during our first fitting and, it was so informative of just Joe because we were wearing like a bunch of dad clothes in a yeah. way, quote unquote. Like bigger shirts, faded shirts, you know, there's this, this interesting kind of line. Joe doesn't really know how to dress himself, but maybe he's not dressing himself. Maybe it's Gracie's dressing him. So yeah. really just helped inform another layer of the character wearing yeah. those clothes. Definitely. And also just, I mean, being on set with like powerhouses like Todd Haynes and Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore, like, was that intimidating at all? Because I'd be terrified. You know, I was nervous, but I, I really went deep into the preparation. I went deep into the script and I found new ways to discover Joe and who this man was. And I did a lot of personal, I went to a few extremes, uh, to really immerse myself and with Todd, Natalie and Julie there, I mean, I felt so empowered, so invigorated, so trusted, you know, Todd has this singular language with you. Yeah. Everybody on set when, when he's talking to you, it's just you and him mm-hmm. and you feel like you can do anything. Wow. And then if you have Todd Haynes telling you, trust in your instincts, you, I didn't, you showed me who Joe is and was mm-hmm. just trust you trust in your instincts then you feel more encouraged to leap into that unknown for those 23 days of filming and with natalie and julie we had so much fun in between takes it was light but there was this you know this uh this concentration this hyper focus that i had to tell this character's story yeah and being in constant awe of natalie and julie which i was but you know, this hyper-focus, this hyper-concentration to do the work. I mean, it sounds like, and I mean, I think rightfully so, you have an appreciation for, like, the vision of Todd Haynes and how he sort of does his work. Is there a Todd Haynes film that stands out to you as one that, like, you know, you really look to as, like, that's a masterpiece? Besides May, December, obviously. (laughs) It's hard to pick with Todd Haynes. There's so, I mean, safe. Yeah. What a masterpiece. Yeah. Well, he's incredible. His first feature, um, I'm not there. Velvet Goldmine. I saw Velvet Goldmine for the first time last year and I watched it, I think, six or seven times. Mm-hmm. I mean, in Dark Waters. I mean, it, it, there's Carol. Yeah. I feel like every every piece that's has the, that, that has Todd Haynes' hands on it is a masterpiece. Far from heaven. Far I from mean, heaven. The amount of anger that I had when she didn't win an Oscar for that movie, that, that (laughs) that should, I mean, that's a beautiful film. 
such a beautiful film. Yeah. Well, with your character, like, I mean, it on paper, it doesn't seem like you guys have a lot in common. I mean, very different lives in terms of who you are as a person and an actor and who this character is. How did you find sort of something to relate to him? Do you know what I mean? Like, how did you, what did you relate to him and how did you find him? Mm-hmm. A lot of these things are instinctual where more so you feel this instinctual feeling before you kind of have this uh, cognitive awareness of what it is that you're drawn to. That's where the preparation comes in, right? I just think about, I think about, you know, Joe serves as the rock of the family, I believe. The provider, the lover, loving father, provides for his family, loves his kids. And it makes me think about, my mother, you know, I'm Korean American. Mm-hmm. I'm first generation on my mom's side. I grew up an army brat. My father met my mother in Korea, and the first time, and the first time they, when when my mother first immigrated to the United States, she was pregnant with me in Juneau, Alaska, mm-hmm. and she was with my grandmother and my dad's three sisters while my dad was away at the Gulf War. Talk about strength in a woman that sense of uh, perseverance, that resilience. You know, I have so much admiration for my mom. She's my hero. And, you know, looking at what she was able to do, in turn, I could be like, you know what? This is what a part of Joe is a part of the strength that this woman has, my mother has. And, And at the age of 11, when we were stationed in Germany as a, you know, a military family, always moving from two every, from place to place, two to four years, there is this, you know, I remember my dad in Germany sat me down when I was 11 and was like, son, you know, he gave me this inspirational talk about taking care of my mom and my two younger sisters because he was going away to war for a year the next day. And, he talked about integrity, honor, love, kindness, grace, so many things. And thinking about that at that young age, I, I, I guess I would not change anything. You know, my dad's my hero as well. But that sense of responsibility of the unknowing made me also think about Joe. Mm. You know, the responsibility that he had at the age of 13 of being a father. Yeah. Putting on those shoes that are too big. There are a lot of roles. Joe, you know, Joe, I believe, is living his story without saying anything. We can see it in his body and the way he moves and the way that he talks. And it's the most truthful. We're in, he's caught in between these two extreme characters and Natalie and Julie's character and Gracie and Elizabeth, who are almost self-effacing in a way they're putting on. Like that's why that scene with Julie and Natalie, when Gracie is putting her face on Elizabeth's yeah. face, is so incredible and just you're in awe. And but Joe, Joe doesn't know his story, but he's living in his story in his body. And um yeah, it's just fascinating that when we see Joe, because, you know, Todd plays a lot with mirrors. When we see Joe look at himself for the first time, yeah. to me, it's not the first time Joe ever sees himself. Mm-hmm. He's ever actually looking at himself. And going into, you know, the resp- going back to the responsibility of being a father at such a young age, there's a lot of these roles that Joe had to take on. Mm-hmm. 
and a part of his identities or, or the concoction of his identity were all these things, even being an x-ray technician. Yeah. The x-ray technician's job is to take the photo and pass it on to somebody else that will diagnose. That is so symbolic of Joe. Joe can look at a photo, but there's no diagnosis. There's no acknowledgement. There's no asking himself questions. That could be kind of a parallel. So, but that was, that's just the richness of the material that Sammy wrote and, you know, the, the, the empowerment, the, the guidance from Todd Haynes and just the empowerment from Julian Natalie. Yeah. There, there really is this sort of, um, I mean, I found in watching the film, this dance between, do I feel for him as a victim or do I feel for him as a man who's just trying to provide for his family and be the best father that he can? Like there was this sort of back and forth. Did you ever see him as a victim of, I mean, of really, you know, sexual assault, in know, in a way. Sure. Yeah, no, I know what you're saying. You know, as the, person that's going to align himself to this character in the sense of telling this character's story. I really started with Sammy's script and came to Joe with empathy and without any sort of judgment. Mm-hmm. And with this sense of caretaking for Joe and his experience and really understanding how he would navigate through that. You know, I went to as far as preparation, working with my coaches, as far as like script analysis and just, you know, you know, aside from, you know, therapy with myself, I would do therapy as Joe or, you know, or, you know, just really break down just these, the the psychology of who this man was and how he created this adaptive adult child in order to survive, Mm -hmm. which was very exciting for me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it sort of culminates and there's that, there's one scene that stands out, well, there's just a few scenes that stand out to me, but there's one scene of, you know, him confronting Gracie and saying, like, we need to talk about this. We need to talk about what happened. We've never talked about it. And it felt like this sort of, he was finally realizing that his adolescence was robbed from him, that he never really had, he never really yeah. had a childhood in a way. Did you feel that at all? You know, when you look at, you know, looking at the metaphor of the butterflies and everything, you know, there's different stages. And when you look at the stage of the chrysalis, when the caterpillar is forming yeah. the chrysalis, if that chrysalis falls or if you touch that chrysalis, you can contaminate that chrysalis. So a part of Joe's adolescence was taken from him. His adolescence was... He had to adapt to the experience of what happened in his adolescence. And that shaped, in part, his discovery where we find him for the first time when he's in that room with Gracie asking the question we as the audience are asking. Mm -hmm. What if I was too young? And it's heartbreaking. Because Joe's not coming in, pointing the finger and accusing anyone. He just wants to talk about it, to acknowledge it, to not suppress it any longer. 
he wants to bring it to the surface and ask. And that's why it's such a heartbreaking scene. And he's gaslit by Gracie's character. Yeah. Manipulated. And it's very heartbreaking. It was a very heartbreaking scene. I mean, yeah, it felt like in a way, you know, I mean, there are so many different metaphors you can come from this film, but in a way it was like, you know, the, 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 the the lost person sort of finally coming back at their like killer basically and sort of confronting the killer and trying to like trying to scream like we need to do that I need to stop you I need to uh, something and yet even that in that moment he never really got what he needed you know it just seems like he never got what he needs which is to be acknowledged in a way that's the thing I mean we all want to be seen yeah we all want to be seen whether we're agreed with or not is not in our control, but to be seen, to be heard. And Joe's journey to that is a heartbreaking and beautiful one. Yeah. And that's why it just brings me to the graduation scene where it's such a joyous and hopeful moment for Joe. It's tears of joy. It's tears of uncertainty. It's tears of his kids graduating for so life, his, you know, Joe is someone who puts everything before himself. Joe will eat the second plate, the third plate, the fourth plate, the fifth plate of the serving in order to make you feel good aside from himself. Feel good. Yeah. You know, there's this, there's this codependency without resentment that Joe has. That's so, sweet yeah and heartbreaking yeah definitely and there's also i mean and the moment that we get to see and you talked a little bit about this with variety that we get to see him be almost that that teenage kid having that sort of fling with someone that he probably never was able to get with natalie portman and of course the the news that went around the world the nine hour prosthetic moment that that you talked about with variety that people went crazy for but for me, that scene was so important in that, like, it showed kind of a little bit of the younger Joe that he probably never was able to to be like. You know what I mean? Sure. Or we're seeing what happened to Joe previously with Gracie happening again yeah. as a 30-year-old man with Elizabeth. You know, the part whenever he jumps into the bed after, you know they do the deed is he's kind of like, you know, Oh, I saw the audience kind of like laugh and giggle. Yeah. As you know, he jumps into the bed and he's like earnest and he's like, okay, you know, like, okay, what's next? You know, like yeah. now we're in love, you know, it, it's so heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. It's so heartbreaking. And that, I mean, and that he's being used by another, well, I wouldn't say older woman, but another woman, you know, he's, sure. he's being used in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah yeah it's really it really is i mean you, you, your performance is it's one of those sort of nuanced performances that like i it's just you don't see on film a lot because it's it's there isn't a lot there and yet you made so much of of what you could do with it i mean at the end of the day what do you think was the hardest part of making this movie i think the hardest part was leaving Savannah, Georgia after day 23 and knowing that was the last day. Yeah. 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 You wanted to stay? 
I wanted to stay. If I could stay with Natalie, Julia, Dot, I would. And everybody. It was such a beautiful family. I mean, you know, it was it was incredible. Well, and also, it only took 23 days to do all of that. Like, that's incredible. I mean, that's, I mean, you know, that's independent filmmaking for you. You know, there's a short amount of time. There's a small budget. And every minute, every second counts. And what better visionary and genius to have other than Todd Haynes yeah. and castmates and Julie and Natalie and all the actors that played the kids, Gabriel, Lizzie Piper, and then, you know, Corey Michael Smith, DW, you know, just everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Corey's performance really just sort of, I mean, that that's a shocker too. That one was sort of just similar to yours and that like, you don't, you don't see it coming and then he gets on screen and it just sort of blows up at you. It's incredible. Yeah. What a, well, my, the other thing that I, I'm, I like, we talked about earlier, the award season stuff and, you know, awards is great and everything is great and the film getting recognized is wonderful. But one of the realities, which I, th- unfortunate realities, but also an exciting opportunity for you is that, you know, there have been only two other Asian men who have won best supporting actor in the history of the Academy Awards. Now, you're a part of that conversation now, which is a big monumental sort of, experience to to be a part of that conversation i wanted to know how does it feel for you that even though it everything in my opinion everything should be about the conversation your identity also has to be a part of that conversation too in a lot of circles how does that feel for you and how do you navigate sort of being present in this moment while also recognizing that it means a lot to a lot of specific a specific group of people yeah. I think keeping my family and my loved ones close. You know, I'm proud to be Korean American. And I know my mother's so proud and my family in Korea are so proud. And I understand that sometimes in life, the things we do whether it be for the greater good of art and storytelling or whatever it may be that we can inspire people and generations of people. And I am lucky and grateful to be the son of an American father, white American father, and the son of Korean mother who immigrated to the United States, pregnant with me, who I remember quizzing and studying with when I was 12 years old when she got her citizenship in San Antonio, Texas. Wow. So the responsibility, you know, uh, sometimes certain things are bigger than me or the self, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I'm just I'm grateful. Yeah, definitely. Well, my last question then for you is speaking of your mother, which I I love hearing about on you on red carpets talk about this, but you guys have a kimchi business which is 
so incredible. I love that. I love that. I mean, I love kimchi. And I I want, I had to, I mean, there's a lot of other big, important questions I wanted to ask you, but I had to end on this question. What is this business? And has it blown up since you've been talking about it? And where can people get your kimchi? Which sounds like a euphemism, but it's not. It's not. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, the the goal is in 2024 to be a full operation to where people can place their orders for kimchi. Mm. But, um, you know, those are business discussions I need to have with my mother. Yes. <laughs> but, yeah, it's uh, six generations of kimchi. So, uh, uh, for, you know, a kimchi recipe that's just evolved throughout the, the centuries. So it's... Wow. Uh, I love that. What is the, does the company have a name yet? Souks Kimchi. Oh, that's amazing. I love that. Well, if you need a spokesperson, one of my best friends in the world is the drag queen Kimchi. And it's, it feels like a match made in heaven. If you don't oh know her, you should. Yes, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, you oh, should. Yeah. You should definitely look her up because I feel like she'd be a great person to and she loves food. So it would be she'd be perfect for you. That's awesome. Yeah, that's Awesome. Well, Charles, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I really do appreciate it. And, and I, I'm just so happy for all of your success. And it's just, it's so warranted and so, so much deserved. Thank you so much. What a year for great performances. I mean, those were just two of the many great performances of the year. And I'll be speaking with many of the actors getting awards buzz this year. So definitely stay subscribed to the Parting Shot podcast. And let me know what you thought of today's episode. I'm H. Allen Scott on everything. And leave a little rating or review wherever you're listening to this podcast. And you know, for the latest news and podcasts, go to Newsweek.com and subscribe to my newsletter for the culture because it's fun and it comes out two days a week and you'll love it. Until then, go watch Rustin and go watch May, December. They're both available on Netflix. So definitely go watch them and have a great day. 